I'm Chris Runge, and this is Study Hall. Podcast dedicated to getting a little bit smarter about Africa. What's up, Study Haulers? In this episode of Study Hall, we're going to start our review of Tim Wu's excellent book, The Attention Merchants. Um, I'm going to try to keep it a little more brief than I kept it last time because both people who listened to the podcast told me that it was a little too long and it got a little boring in the middle. So, not exactly the feedback I was hoping for, but I'm trying to keep myself open to criticism, so I'm going to try to step on it as we go through this. The first section I want to go through is the what's in it for you section. I think this is an awesome thing to review before we go into a book review. So this is what I think you can get out of it if you're an ad person or if you're a client of ad people. Like all great histories, and this is a great history, this book helps you understand where we are today. And that's its real. That's a, a huge part of the value of the book. Um it helps you understand how we got here. It helps you understand what the long-term trends are, what the long the stories that have been part of advertising since it's the start of the modern advertising age. So you can recognize those stories when they appear in your life. For instance, the advertising success and reaction to success cycle. That's an old cycle, it turns out. It's been going on ever since advertising first became part of modern life and It'll probably go on until modern life itself ends. So, for instance, contrast that with Andrew Essex's approach to the to the question of advertising success and reaction. It'll help you get a lot, take a lot calmer view of things, take a lot lot a longer term view of things, and and probably be a little more discerning of uh, things you need to pay attention to and things that you can ignore. It's a great history of the channels of advertising, so if you want to be more sophisticated in your understanding of what channels mean what and how they how they interact with one another, it's a great history of those channels. It's a great history of personalities. Advertising is a personality business, um, and this covers off on all the relevant personalities, especially the first section of the book, which we'll be covering today. And it's a great review of the approaches and techniques that, that advertising has employed in the modern age. And it's it, so good, in fact, that it's it's difficult for me to believe that Tim Wu actually didn't work in advertising, which, uh, as far as I can tell, he never did. But um, it's a great breakdown of those approaches and techniques. And if you're a copywriter or an art director, um, or even an account person or a brand or, or product manager, it's a great review of those. And it, and it sort of places them in their historical context, which makes them easier to understand. It's a powerful uh, analytical tool. So the second way that this is valuable, the second way this book is valuable, is it's a great contemplation of attention as an asset. It helps you, again, with your discernment of what you should care about in terms of attention gathering in the modern society, right? How does attention work? How do we go about getting attention? And once you've got attention, what do you do with it? How do you, A, make money off it if you are the person that's getting the attention with your property? Or how do you make money on it by getting in touch with the people that own the property and advertising through them. So it's an amazing case study on, on spotting and understanding things that draw attention. And um, that's the second, the second uh, area of value. So how do we get here and what do we do now we're here, basically? What is attention and how do we use it? So who's Tim Wu? Tim Wu's smarter than you, according to this little bumper sticker I thought up as I was talking to this microphone. Tim Wu was a writer, he's a lawyer, he's a professor, 
and he's a scholar. He runs the Columbia Law Law and Technology Lab with a couple of other prominent attorneys. He's written for major media outlets like the New York Times. He was a clerk for Stephen Breyer on the U.S. Supreme Court. And for those of you that aren't up on law culture, that is probably the – that is – yeah, I don't think anybody who's been to law school would argue with this. It's the, it's the biggest deal for a law, a law student. And, it, and for a lawyer, it's, it's, a, it's a huge deal, too. This is The people who clerk on the Supreme Court are the elite of the elite. And uh, Tim Wu's one of them. Not surprisingly, he was named one of the most one, 100 most influential lawyers by the National Law Journal. Uh, he's worked for the Federal Trade Commission and the New York Attorney General. He worked for Obama in uh, Obama's 2016 campaign. Tim Wu coined the term net neutrality, and it's going to be important when we do his the next the next book that he wrote, The Master Switch. And he actually worked for the FTC on the first net neutrality rule. So this is history written by a history maker. This is a guy who who is a a heavy heavy hitter. He also ran for lieutenant governor in New York as a trust busting Democrat against Cuomo's choice for the the office. And while I don't share those politics, uh, I have to applaud, A, his desire to get involved in government and not just talk about it, and B, um, his desire to take on the New York Democratic machine. Anybody who's prepared to do that is a friend of mine. He's written three books in total. He's got a bunch of talks on YouTube, uh, including, um, uh, he didn't do it, but there's an audiobook uh, version of The Attention Merchants on YouTube, although you should go out and buy this book. Um, it's a great book. You're going to use it. You're going to refer to it. Um, but, you know, it's also on YouTube if you want to get that that way. So what's the structure of the book? The book has five parts. It's charting the history of attention harvesting um, and the use of the attention once it's harvested. And it gets into this really interesting thing about social control, right? Attention really is a means of social control. First, the social control was religious, right? The attention gathering was done through religious institutions for the purpose of ordering people's behavior, right? And then that control passed to capitalist and, and political institutions or market and political institutions. But the goal was the same. The goal was behavioral control or behavioral influence. And uh, that's a really interesting, that's a really interesting part of the structure of the book. And then the other thing about the, the, um, the arc of the book is it throws down a question of, you know, the really big question, which is what are you paying attention to and why? And how is that connected with your freedom? Great quote on page five. Since its inception, the attention industry in its many forms has asked and gained more and more of our waking moments, albeit always in exchange for new conveniences and diversions, creating a grand bargain that has transformed our lives. In the process, as a society and individually, we have accepted a life experience that is, in all of its dimensions, economic, political, social, any way you can think of, mediated as never before in human history. And if each bargain in isolation seems a win-win, in their grand tot totality, they have come to exert a more ambiguous, though profound, influence on how we live. Ultimately, it is not the nation or culture, but the very nature of our lives that is at stake. For how we spend the brutally limited resource of our attention will determine those lives to a degree most of us may prefer not to think about. As William James observed, we must reflect that, when we reach the end of our days, our life experience will equal what we have paid attention to, whether by choice or default. We are at risk, without quite fully realizing it, of lives that are less our own than we imagine. The goal of what follows is to help us understand more clearly how the deal went down and what it means for all of us. 
So today we're looking at part one, basically, which is six chapters long. It's the history of advertising through the Great Depression. And if you could sum it up in a, in a sentence, it's the industrialization of human attention capture, as Wu writes on page 72, and the monetization of that attention by ad channel owners, ad agencies, and their clients. So let's get to it. Uh, chapter one. Chapter one's entitled The First Attention Merchants. And it's the story of the first rise and, and incredible success of attention merchants and then the reaction to that success, right? So go back with me now to New York City in the 1830s. It's 1833, and we're in the world of newspapers in New York City. Newspapers at that time were just basically newsletters for interested professionals. So if you were a uh, trader, say, or you were a politician, there were newsletters you could buy, really, um, for about six cents a day that were written very dense um, for you, and they were pretty boring. They were um, sort of like Westlaw, I guess, or some other subscription service. You just, you know, it's basically just the facts, ma'am. And there weren't really ads in them. Ads at that time um, were more like notice board things at a coffee shop. Hey, we're selling some speakers. I lost my cat, blah, blah, blah. Sort of designed to be looked at by people who actually wanted to get information from them. And that would change, starting with this guy, Benjamin Day. Now, who's Benjamin Day? Well, Benjamin Day was this guy. He was a printer. So he understood how to make, um, he understood how to make newspapers. And he had this brilliant idea, very simple idea. He, he said, what would happen if I sold a newspaper for one penny so that the common, a common person could afford it daily or semi-daily? And uh, I'm going to make money not just from selling the paper. I'm going to make money from selling advertising in the paper. And so he proceeded to do that. And, of course, it was a wild success. And it was followed by others, a sports paper, a true crime paper, um, Benjamin Day got incredibly rich. He vastly expanded the public sphere. So now there was a public uh, a commentary, you know, the op-ed page, if you will, was available to much larger groups of people. Um, and so, and in, and, in, and in addition to changing the public discourse, he also um, added some stuff to the public discourse that we're still seeing today. The clickbait, for instance, there were hilarious stories um, that they would put in these papers. For instance, a story about moon bats that lived on the moon and uh, were observable through this giant telescope that that came that had come online uh, in the 1840s, I think, and they were sort of going on and on about the antics of the moon people. So people, of course, would buy these buy these things and, and read them. There were all kinds of salacious stories. There was a ton of smack talking and shit posting. Um, it was basically the internet except on paper, and it was spectacular. Then the story shifts to Paris, and we meet a guy named Jules Charest, who was a master of lithography, right? He was able to make these beautiful posters uh, in large, large numbers. And so what they started to do with these posters was they would make these commercial posters that would, um, they would, pa they would paste up on a wall, and people would be walking by, and you, your eye would be caught by these posters almost involuntarily. So we'd move from... We moved from Ben Day's product where, you know, the, the ads were adjacent to the copy and you'd maybe look at them incidentally to these posters which were starting to get your attention involuntarily, right? And they were very successful. 
partly because they're talking to your lizard brain, right? You, you're going to have to pay attention to these things whether or not you want to necessarily because they're so visually arresting, right? Um, an interesting quote about that on page 21. What used to be thought of as the reptilian core of our brains, let's now simply speak of those neural circuits governing behavior that seems reflective, like flinching at a loud noise, should not be underestimated where the harvesting of attention is concerned. For once you recognize the triggers, you begin to see them everywhere. The flashing lights employed by vendors, those bouncing icons on your computer screen, the little pictures of cats or sexy women attached to internet links. And then he goes on. Motion, color, critters of every kind, sexualized men and women, babies and monsters seem to work best on us. It was the achievement of the late 19th century's poster pioneers to recognize these responses and put them to profitable use, a lesson that neither advertisers nor their eventual imitators in government would ever forget. So here's, I think, where a, a place where Essex went wrong, right? This is the, the lizard brain is very important. You shouldn't not talk to the lizard brain. You should not ignore the lizard brain. The lizard brain is very important to advertising. Although, you know, Essex was right about his concept of infobesity. Um, what started to happen in Paris was the visual environment started to get overwhelmed by the proliferation of these posters, and people started getting all this sort of low informational, nutritional content stuff through their eyes, and they be and it was ugly. They experienced it as ugliness and sort of too muchness, and they just and they reacted against it, right? Um, there's an awesome quote by Karl Marx. None other than Karl Marx noticed these things and had an opinion about them. Um, and there was a huge revolt. Um, eventually, the, the posters were banned uh, and curtailed pretty severely. That was the first instance of attention merchants being sort of their own worst enemies. It's, it's almost like a little kid who successfully gets your attention and then works that, works that little gag he figured out to get your attention to death, and you finally say, go to your room. Same thing. They, the, ben Day and Jules Charest had, had managed to get these, get people's attention in large numbers, monetize it, became wildly successful, and then uh, in the case of Paris, people finally revolted and said, you know, get out of here. So, on to chapter two, which is entitled The Alchemist. And in The Alchemist, we meet Claude C. Hopkins. Probably the closest thing that Wu writes, Wu quotes a guy saying, if, if American advertising ever produced a genius, that genius was Claude C. Hopkins, whom I'd never heard of, right? So who was Claude C. Hopkins? Well, Claude Hopkins was born in 1866, as Jules Charest was, you know, in the midst of launching his poster campaign, and the U.S. had just stumbled out of the Civil War into a preaching family. Uh, he was on the preacher track, but something sort of went wrong, and he ended up not being a preacher. Uh, he kind of re rebelled against the against the brand of Protestantism that he had been very Calvinist, very kind of uh, fun phobic, you might say. Uh, he re he reacted to that and turned his back on it. Um, and his was a typical American story for the time. Since we weren't as credentialist as we are now, he was able to sort of go around and try his hand at a bunch of stuff, and he fell into advertising as what we now call a copywriter, but at the time was called a scheme man, scheme like uh, scheming, a scheme man. Um, and it was an interesting time to be doing what he was doing because as American culture was industrializing, right, after the, after the Civil War, 
methods of gathering attention and methods of communication were also industrializing. And so Hopkins, very talented guy, um, and a trained persuader, right? A trained persuader, trained in the church as a persuader, but a talented one, kind of comes into this ferment of cultural and economic change and begins to have tremendous success. And one of the things he has success in is in patent medicine, right? And then we get into this whole discussion of patent medicine, which is super interesting. Uh, and I don't want to go on for five hours, so read that part of the book. It's, it's amazing. Um, a highlight of that is learning learning about snake oil, right? I, I, of course, we all heard the term snake oil, but did you know who the first snake oil salesman was? It was a guy named Clark Stanley. Clark Stanley was sort of this cowboy dude, and he would dress up as a cowboy, and he would have a thing of rattlesnakes, and he would, as he was addressing a crowd, right, he was a pitchman, like those old New Jersey uh, boardwalk pitchmen, he'd be standing out in front of a crowd, he'd pick a rattlesnake out of the basket, he'd kill it, he'd drop it in a thing of boiling water, and the fat from the rattlesnake carcass would rise to the top of the water. He would skim the fat off. He'd put it in a vial in front of everybody, shake it up, boom, snake oil, right? So Hopkins finds his way into this world, uh, and he pioneers this reason why hard sell, and he, and he sends it out through the mail. Here's Hopkins' copy for an ad for a product called Dr. Shoops, which um, Tim Wu makes a pretty good case, comes almost directly from the Gospel of Matthew. Interesting. Here we go. Some sick one may say, but I've, tried about, but I've tried about all medicines, consulted many physicians, and spent a great deal of money. Nothing can help me. Tell him that the physician that compounded this remedy knows better than he. This physician, who by thousands of bedsides has watched his remedy cure the most difficult cases, knows best what it will do. Dr. Shoup knows that he has discovered the way. He has solved the problem after arduous labors of a lifetime. He knows it because he has made thousands of successful tests, made them in large hospitals where the results were public, made them through many other physicians who will confirm this opinion. And in his private practice, he has successfully treated more than 100,000 patients suffering from chronic troubles. Dr. Shoup has seen his treatment cure in many thousand cases where other treatments failed, and he has never known his remedy to fail in any disease told of in this book where any other treatment afterwards succeeded. How's that for fair balance? And he ended up working for this stuff called Liquozone, or Liquizone. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. But Liquizone was a huge, huge product at the time. And because he had a piece of it, he had a piece of the Liquizone business, he, was a, he took equity, right? Uh, he became fabulously wealthy off the back of the Liquizone success. Not Stanley, by the way, this is Hopkins. So, um, these guys are being meteorically successful. Patent medicine is, is uh, tearing it up. And then along comes this guy named Samuel Hopkins Adams. Now, we met him when we were reading uh, The End of Advertising. But we meet him again, and, and you can see, actually, a little contrast between Tim Wu's scholarship and Andrew Essex's sort of more magazine-y approach. Um, get a much better background on who Hopkins was, Hopkins Adams was. Um, he was a crime reporter on the New York Sun. Remember Ben Day and the New York Sun? Well, he was a crime reporter on the New York Sun. And he was looking for a new job. He sort of 
had been doing it for five or six years. He was tired of that. He decided to become a muckraker, and he selected patent medicines, which at the time were big business, uh, multi-billion dollar business in, in uh, uh, inflation-adjusted dollars. So he bought a bunch of these patent medicines, and he hired chemists to analyze the products, and he busted Liquizone or Liquozone. And as a result of this uh, muckraking campaign by, by Adams, right? And remember, at the time, you know, we're now we're, we're forward 40 years, and um, Sinclair Lewis is doing his thing, right? The jungle is out and uh, is revolutionizing meatpacking. Adams, in his book, um, sort of gets, gets, in, gets in on that, and new laws come in. The, the shock around Liquozone getting exposed as a scam almost ended Hopkins' career, it ruined him financially, and Wu makes it a metaphor for the whole industry, right? And, they, the, and the industry did indeed get crushed. Clark Stanley, Mr. Snake Oil, got prosecuted in Rhode Island for being a bunko man and um, ended his days in, in penury, as they say. So, uh, just, so this, is a great, this is a great example of the first real, I guess at the end of this chapter, you know, we sort of see the first really successful advertising boosted industry, right? Patent medicine. And we also, we come to see the super success, right? And the reaction to that success. Advertising is very successful. Then there's a reaction against the success, and there's regulation, ruin, and sadness. But advertising itself doesn't go away. So here again, uh, I think we see how Andrew Essex may have gone wrong. So on to King and Country, which is the the, uh, the title of Chapter 3. And this is where we see advertising kind of come into its own and really prove itself as uh you know, we've seen it commercially useful in Chapter 2, and it, it, you see it as, as something that's very politically useful in Chapter 3. So, Chapter 3 opens uh, on the deck of a ship, and we see Lord Kitchener, who was uh, the head of the British Army at the time, I think, uh, with a telegram in his hand, and he's very upset because war is coming. War with Germany is coming. So this is 1914, August, July, June of 1914. And he's got 80,000 men. Now, at that time, uh, on the continent, they had universal conscription. So the armies were very large. They were well-trained. If you walk down a random street in Berlin or in Paris and you point at all the men in military age, well, they knew how to field strip a rifle and they could put accurate fire downrange to like 200 yards. Major, major problem for the British. They did not have, they had about 80,000 men, as I think I said, and they were not going to be able to go up against, uh, you know, the, the fighting forces of the major European powers. So Kitchener knows war is coming, so what's he going to do? Well, he decides to harvest attention, and he decides to turn it to his purpose, which is not buying patent medicine, but joining the army. So he starts a poster in a newspaper campaign, long about October 1914. I'm sorry, August of 1914, and by October, 750,000 men had signed up before the drive lost steam. So August of 1914, they start the campaign, and by October, 750,000 men had signed up, when the army itself was, was only 80,000 men. So almost makes an order of magnitude jump in sales, if you will, of the British army in 
August, September, October, three months. And imagine that. Imagine what that would be like in today's terms if you're an advertising person. Imagine what that meeting would be like if you went to a client and you said, hey, you were making $80,000 in August. You've made $750,000 here in October, right? You'd get their attention, I think. So not surprisingly, um, at when the drive lost steam, they just went back at it bigger um, and better, I suppose. Uh, and they went more multi-channel, right? In fact, we begin to see through this history how multi-channel is really necessary if you wanna if you wanna get uh, if you wanna drive behavioral change on a on a society-wide level. So, they had postering that drove the recruiting effort. Um, and by the way, these were the "I need you" posters that that became the "I want you" posters. They had rallies. They had these things called cinevans, where they put movie projectors in, in vans and they drive them around and show movies. It was a total propaganda effort, um, and advertising was sort of the front and center of that effort. And it was very, very successful. It got a lot of people signing up uh, for the British Army on their own. Um, even after it was pretty clear that when you joined the army and you went over to fight in France, you were looking at a 50-50 chance of coming back either dead or or, or wounded. Um, so, political elites could not help but take notice. Across the pond in the U.S., we meet George Creel, who was a Wilson partisan and a newspaperman. And they, uh, such a such a uh, heavy Wilson partisan that they one person described him as a bearer of a fiery cross for Wilson. There's that religious imagery again, right? who advocated, you know, this modern scientific advertising technique instead of censorship. So again, European contrast on the continent, there's a lot of secret police. You said the wrong thing, you get a, you're going to get a problem. There was a lot of censorship. They sort of tried to quiet the opposition. Whereas what Creel did, very American thing, very positive, very optimistic. He said, you know what? You say what you want. I'm going to outshout you. And so he started the uh, Committee on Public Information, which was a federal government um, agency, I guess. Uh, I don't know if it's formally an agency, but it was, it was under the auspices of the federal government. And within a year, it had 150,000 people working for it in 20 subdivisions, right? And it successfully reversed the public opposition to the First World War. So little background, Wilson had gotten elected I believe in 20, or in 1916, he'd gotten elected, or 1914, can't remember. He'd gotten elected claiming he was going to keep America out of the war. And of course, he got into office and he changed his pledge. He said, nope, we're getting in the war. And as you might imagine, that was a little politically ticklish. So one of Creel's amazing uh, victories was to victory. I mean, this is a vi I'm talking about t tactically, right? This was a victory for him because he achieved his objective. I'm not saying I think it was a great objective he achieved his objective of sort of drawing the political fangs of that decision. Um, and that was, a, that again, political elites took notice, right? And it was a huge omni-channel campaign that they waged, including movies, which was very interesting. They would, they would show feature films um, uh, that were very sort of anti-German. And uh, there's some interesting quotes about those. There's some interesting sort of vignettes that... Uh, Wu provides about those movies, which are which are very cool and were very worth reading. Um, 
And it was so effective that, you know, when Eugene Debs stood up and said the following, You are fit for something better than slavery and cannon fodder. You need to know that you were not created to work and produce and impoverish yourself to enrich an idle exploiter. You need to know that you have a mind to improve, a soul to develop, and a manhood to sustain. They put him in jail for 10 years, and the Supreme Court upheld that conviction. None other than Oliver Wendell Holmes, who's a, if you guys don't know a lot about Oliver Wendell Holmes, he's a progressive legal guy, uh, I guess. He's sort of seen as a... Um, Although now people, I would love actually to get a comment on this podcast, but if I, this was a podcast that people listen to in great numbers, I'm sure that would be a huge fight in the comment section. But Oliver Wendell Holmes generally understood to be a fairly progressive American legal figure. And he totally sent Eugene Debs down the river on the uh, whole standing up for the humanity of the people that were being ground up in the meat grinder in France. Uh, and advertising got him there. Okay, advertising worked even on Oliver Wendell Holmes. So, at the end of the war, advertising had proven itself to be sort of the keystone of a omni-channel propaganda campaign that if you were a political person and wanted to change opinions or get elected or get people to, to, to change their behavior you needed to pay attention to very seriously. And you, they could look back on the experience of the First World War and they could say, look look what we did. 80,000 men, three months later, 750,000 men. And then they could go on from there. So the reaction to this, well, there, as you might imagine, there were two camps, two reactions to this. Very roughly can be summed up as cynical, um, exemplified by Walter Lippmann, who became a very, uh, very famous um, PR guy. He had worked for the Creel Committee, and he was very down on democracy. He sort of walked away thinking, like, well, we can make these people believe anything, so uh, what, what does that mean about democracy? There were people who were horrified. So there's, there's this quote from uh, Justice Holmes, Justice Brandeis, and, and Justice Hand from the Supreme Court um, on the importance of liberty which is, a, I think you can understand, Wu certainly puts it forward as a, as a reaction to the um, success of the Creel Committee in making it sort of socially unacceptable to propound opposing views to the war. You know, very interesting, you know, again, not to, not to beat this to death, but Creel, very interesting, very American, and in my view, very laudable. He did not try to silence opposition. He just he just made you live with the consequences of opposing this massive social wave that he had generated. Um, now, I don't agree with jailing Eugene Debs for ten years, but uh, I just think it's I, it's an Ameri it's a very it's a very laudable and very American thing. I think to sort of say you can say whatever you want. I'm just going to outshout you. Um, very cool and very not cool. But again, I said I was going to get through this quickly, so I'm not going to go on and on about that. But think about it. Uh, and then finally, there was Bernays, right? The, op, the, the guy who wrote Propaganda, which you've probably heard referenced if you spent any time in advertising or public affairs. He sort of, Wu puts him up as the guy who sort of realized the commercial potential of this machine. Um, and then there was one other group that noticed... 
the future Nazis. There were a bunch of Germans who, uh, uh, after the First World War, looked back on it, um, folks that would play a very um, tear-drenched and blood-drenched role in the history of Europe, and they, um, they took notice. And so George Creel was the predecessor, as was Kitchener, of Lonnie Riefenstahl and the, uh, the horrors of the Nazi regime. So, very, very interesting chapter uh, for a lot of reasons. One, it makes you realize how easily public opinion can be swayed if you have the money and the will. Uh, two, it sort of underscores the link between attention and opinion. You get people's attention and you can change their opinions. And that kind of gets at free will, right? I mean, are you? we think we're, we have free choice, but in fact, you look at the history of advertising and in a wider sense propaganda in the First World War and you kind of go to your city and say, well, I don't, I don't know about that. Um, and then some of this is very troubling. You know, there's, there's, these are troubling chapters and this is the first really troubling one because, you know, at the end you sort of, at least I got this sort of sense is thinking to myself, is, is advertising, are we kind of like the lantern fish's lantern? Sort of down there in the dark shining an attractive little light so all the fishies will swim in and get chopped up. It was certainly... Uh, the effect of the propaganda campaigns in the First World War. Now, this podcast isn't about the First World War, and we're not going to talk about the ends of the First World War. Of course, you know, broadly speaking, probably had to be fought. Um, bad things happen, and sometimes, you know, life doesn't work out like you want it to, and you end up getting cut in half by German machine gun fire in some random town in France instead of, say, marrying your high school sweetheart and having a bunch of kids and becoming a successful lawyer in your town, right? Sometimes that happens, and uh, hey, sometimes it's worth it. Sometimes it's not. I think I'll stop there, though, because that's a very thorny issue, and this is a podcast about advertising. Okay, let's get on to Chapter 4, Demand Engineering, Scientific Advertising, and What Women Want. This is a history of the golden age of advertising, where the industry hit its stride as a, a real driver whether actual or perceived, but it was a real, it was perceived as a real driver of the consumer culture and, and began to be seen as indispensable to sales success. Here's a quote by C.C. Hopkins that sums up the, the, uh, the way advertising was seeing itself at this time. Here's Hopkins. We change the currents of trade. We populate new empires, build up new industries, and create customs and fashions. We dictate the food the baby shall eat, the clothes the mother shall wear, the way in which the home shall be furnished. Our very names are unknown, but there is scarcely a home and city or hamlet where some human being is not doing what we demand. Really almost the virtual reality goggles of America at that time. It was, it was advertising saw itself as having arrived and being at the very center of the rising consumer culture. And was there a rising consumer culture? Why, yes, there was. Uh, looking at the numbers, in the beginning of the century, so 1900, people were spending about $79 a year in $1900 on durable goods. By 1920, they were spending $279. So that's a huge increase, 300% or so. So in today's dollars, by the way, that's $1900 to $6700. Enormous change in spending. And in the 20s itself, from 23 to 29, that spending from 23 to 29, total consumption, right? Not just consumption of durable goods, but total consumption increased by 25% on top of that. So 
we're looking at this sort of enormous hockey stick graph that appeared in the 20s. And advertising, like Hopkins' quote says, was kind of seen, saw itself as driving that and, and was seen by others as driving that. And here, here we see actually the first link with academic psychology. And it was a formal link. So there was this Dr. Watson, not Holmes's Dr. Watson, but uh, this Dr. Watson who um, was a behaviorist and was hired by J. Walter Thompson became an advertising, became an account executive and, and, a, and an ambassador for J. Walter Thompson, sort of going around to corporate America, extolling the power of behaviorist psychology and uh, its ability to get consumers to do what, what uh, the clients of ad agencies wanted them to do. So, and to give you a flavor of what kind of guy and what kind of, what kind of things Watson was prepared to do, I'll tell you a story about little Albert. So little Albert was an infant, and Dr. Watson got a hold of him, and he showed him a rat. And because little Albert was an infant, he, th he thought to himself, I guess, oh, cute, look, look at this little cute fuzzy animal. Well, standing behind him was Dr. Watson with a hammer and a bar, uh, like a steel bar. And whenever Albert saw the rat, Watson would hit that steel bar for all he was worth and make Albert cry, scare him and make him cry. So not... Unsurprisingly, after a while, little Albert was afraid of rats. In fact, little Albert was so afraid of uh, Watson and his iron bar, he, uh, he was afraid of everything with, that was white and furry, even Santa Claus. And it's a, it's a very sad story, um, but it, it, it illustrates how Madison Avenue used science to sell itself, right? They would go around telling potential clients, look, we have the keys to the human mind and we can get people to do things based on definite scientific rules, which we have a, have a close understanding of. They also came up with this idea of design engineering, which is just demand creation. But you can imagine at the time when spending was rising so rapidly and everybody was trying to get in on it, design engineering is a big idea, right? You want to, you want to be with the people who can create demand for a product that people don't naturally need, right? Like Listerine for halitosis. Do you, do you really need that? Probably not like you need salt or, or oxygen. Advertising was sort of selling itself as the people who had the ability to make people need Listerine in the same way that they need salt or oxygen. And then branding. Branding appeared at this time as well. And it was a reaction, actually, to the C.C. Hopkins hard sell. There was this guy called Theodore McManus who worked for GM at the time. He's the father of the Cadillac uh, brand. And he's also the father of branding, according to Wu. McManus didn't like this C.C. Hopkins hard sell. He thought that that got people on board really quickly, but they soon grew tired of it and they walked away from the product because the hard sell didn't work on them anymore. They sort of had this part of their brain that would sort of say to itself, well, okay, I, I agree that I need this product, but maybe I can get it cheaper somewhere else. They had no loyalty, right? They had no brand loyalty. Well, McManus, who, by the way, was a Catholic, very interesting, who continues to build this story of uh, advertising as a new kind of priest class uh, and having a priestly function in, in modern society. McManus was a Catholic, and McManus, Wu argues, was influenced by his Catholicism to create a emotional bond, sort of be focused on an emotional bond that sort of goes beyond rationality and ties you to a product. Why do you like Coke? Why do you like Coke? Is it because Coke has a formula that works on your taste buds better? No, no. You've, you think Coke is great because 
you think Coke is great. Same with Nike, same with a lot of things. That's where this all began. Theodore McManus, the devout Catholic, realizing that emotion a lot of times could get you over the problems that an appeal to rationality couldn't always get you over. So at the same time, as, as this emotional bonding and the, science, the, the emotional bonding was appearing as part of the scientific approach to advertising, people were realizing that women were the executives of the household spending. And so women, not surprisingly, became a focus of advertising. So Wu tells this great story of Woodbury Soap. Woodbury Soap, uh, sort of at the turn of the century, was selling itself on a very C.C. Hopkins rational approach hard sell. And then a copywriter named Helen Lansdowne got her hands on it. And Lansdowne turned it into a much more emotional sell. It became not just about what the product did, clean your skin, your scalp, etc., etc. Lansdowne did a very good job of setting it up as promising a better life, making you more lovable, making you more likely to attract a mate. And this is an early example of advertising that works on an emotional level. Uh, very ordinary now. Everybody does that now, but this is the, its first appearance. And so it's interesting. So this kind of approach dates back to the 1920s. So, and at that same time, you know, very like the digital craze that, that's seized advertising in the last 20 years, J. Walter Thompson introduced these women called lady persuaders of whom Helen Lansdowne was the chief. In fact, and she was so important and such high, so high status at uh, J. Walter Thompson that she actually ended up marrying Stanley Renzer, who was the president. Gives you an idea of how sort of at the center of everything advertising to women had become. It's interesting to think about when you think about things like digital advertising. Things really do change. New things do really, really do come on the scene. And, and advertising agencies often change themselves to accommodate them. So then we go from there to the Listerine story. And the Listerine story is basically about this woman who's in her 30s. She isn't married. She has halitosis or bad breath. No one will tell her. And Listerine could save her from this. Listerine, like Woodbury Soap, offers her a possibility of a, a much more beautiful life. Uh, it seems a little hokey to us now. You sort of look at, you read it, and you're sort of like, well, I can see through that, blah, blah, blah. But it's really a foundational ad. All the ads we've been doing since then owe something to these sort of Woodbury soap Listerine ads. And it's interesting to read them and interesting to see how they came about. Another thing we learn about is cause marketing. Uh, of course, it's the 20s, right? So women had just gotten the vote in the United States, the 19th Amendment and all that. And since it was so heavily into the culture, of course, advertising came along and, and hooked onto it. And old Dutch cleansers started saying things like, we are here to free women from drudgery, the drudgery of housework, because we're such an effective cleaner. And shredded wheat showed up and said, we're here to uh, free women from the drudgery of cooking, because shredded wheat's easy to prepare. Uh, an early example of how advertising looks around the culture, finds things that are powerful, hooks onto them, and co-ops them a little bit in the service of selling a product, right? So... Again, something that we do all the time now, but that started in the 20s. And then the celebrity endorsement. Again, do it all the time now. Started in the 20s. It, it came off this idea that women were more likely to emulate others than men are. Uh, don't know if that's still true today, but they certainly felt it was true then. And that's, that was the rise of celebrity endorsements. That's why they started doing that.
like I said at the top, this was this chapter is really about the golden age of advertising. It it's when advertising really came into its own, and as you can see, there were a lot of things that we still to do today that first appeared in the twenties, and sort of it's the story of the flowering of advertising of its of its true arrival on the American scene, and it's it's sort of feeling its oats and its its incredible hubris at the at the beginning of the twenties, and of course, since this is a Tim Wu book. Uh, and he was very clear about how there was going to be a reaction to this. We can sort of sit here and enjoy the flowering of advertising, but also think a little bit about the killing frost that is to come. So, on to Chapter 5, which is entitled A Long Lucky Run. And if you thought the previous chapters were squirmy, this one will make you um, very uncomfortable. This is, the, this is, I like to think about this chapter, as the chapter in which the devil puts on his dancing shoes. Because this is really a horror story. With some, there's some nice protagonists, but um, as usual, as you can as you can expect from Tim Wu, who is a great storyteller. I mean, I'm not really going into how much admiration I have for him as a storyteller, but I really admire his storytelling ability because he uses protagonists so well. Um, so the first guy we meet is George Washington Hill, who's kind of a cartoon, right? He's the Lucky Strike product manager, right? And he really ate the dog food, as we say. I mean, he lived and breathed, no pun intended, Lucky Strike. He had, a, he had two dogs, one named Lucky, one named Strike. And all he thought about was making more, making more sales for Lucky Strike. And we also meet Albert Lasker, who was an ad man, and Edward Bernays um, of, of propaganda fame. And there he is again, Mr. C.C. C. Hopkins. So they sort of move, this, this campaign kind of moves beyond just demand engineering to the real making of morals. And this is the Bernays campaign, which um, Wu actually has a pretty interesting take on. The Bernays uh, Torch of Freedom campaign. So here's what happened with that. Um, so it turned out that Lasker's wife was asked to, to not smoke in a, I believe it was, it was in a restaurant. And so she goes, she, so he takes that, she goes outside to smoke or, or whatever they tell her, please put that out, madam. And she doesn't like that. And Lasker says, hey, why can't women smoke as much as men, right? Women should be able to smoke anywhere they want, just like men do. Uh, and so they decided that Lucky Strike would be a torch for freedom, torch of freedom. So if you walk down the, walk down the street smoking a Lucky and you're a woman, well, you're not just uh, giving yourself lung cancer and getting high off the nicotine, you're... Striking a blow for feminism, and this actually this is this was around very not well I guess not so recently anymore, but it was around in the "You've Come a Long Way, Baby" campaign too, right? Um, I believe, which I believe is Newport cigarettes. That's that 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 gives it a whole other kind of nauseating um, dimension <laughs> to that to that otherwise rather uh, pedestrian campaign. So, and you know what? They sold a ton of Lucky Strikes. Um, that was a very, very, uh, that's a very, very interesting story and it's well worth a read and it's, and it's a cautionary tale. So, you know, as we get towards the, uh, the page 70 mark, you know, we start to realize advertising agencies have come a long way. Just like those Newport cigarettes. And in fact, Stanley Renzer and Helen Lansdowne, remember them, um, were so sort of at the peak of American culture that they had, they had none other than Ludwig Mies van der Rohe the great Dutch architect designed their vacation home. So these are people at the forefront of everything. Here's where Wu really ties up this notion that, 
that advertising is the new church. The copywriters and the art directors are the new priests. And the, the mission is to bring heaven in the form of materialism closer to closer to people. And, and it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting theory, um, a very interesting observation rather. And uh, yeah, well worth a read. I mean, it really makes this, this it's, a, it's an example of how Wu makes this book really, really matter. Um, it, it, there's a lot to think about here. So, chapter six. Almost to the end, study haulers. Uh, chapter six, entitled Not With a Bang, But With a Whimper. And it's, it's really the, the history of the, the final revolt of this era, right, in, in which we meet um, our protagonists, Stuart Chase, Frederick Sh uh, Schink, and Rex Tugwell. So who are Case and Schink? Case and Schink were two guys uh, from New York City. Case was, Chase was an investigator, and Schink was an engineer, and they were very skeptical of advertising. They were the anti-C.C. Hopkins, and they sort of decried the idea that um, advertising was kind of muddying people's thoughts and, and um, making them make bad decisions. And there's this very interesting motor oil quote. Here it is. Two men are discussing the merits of a famous brand of oil. Says one, I know it must be good. It sells a million dollars worth a year. You see their advertisements everywhere. But the other says, I do not care how much it sells. I left a drop of it on a piece of copper for 24 hours and the drop turned green. It is corrosive and I do not dare to use it. The first speaker followed the crowd. But his friend disregarded the fact of bigness and went after the facts of chemistry. As a result, he arrived at a precisely opposite course of action from the common one. Sometimes the crowd is right. Often it is wrong. It remains for science to read the balance. I mean, that's an amazing moment. That could be two members of the Royal Society criticizing a Jesuit or the Archbishop of Canterbury for following religious superstition when scientific rationality shows a different and a better path. And that's the mark of Wu as a master historian. He's connected the rise and the impulses of advertising to some of the biggest events in Western intellectual history, right? Advertising is the new religion. It offers spiritual comfort through material goods instead of a relationship with God not to get weird about that or anything, but that's really what it is, historically. And uh, then science shows up and says, hey, wait a minute, isn't this all just superstition? And threatens to disrupt the whole edifice. Very interesting. So back to Case and Schink. And they wrote this book called Your Money's Worth, and they caught a wave of reaction to advertising success, right? And this was a revulsion against uh, an interesting cultural moment because, of course, the Depression was kicking off right around now. This is around the, 18, the 1930s. And even copywriters, like even famous ad people like the copywriter Helen Woodward and Ted McManus thought things had gone too far. Um, you know, there were fewer dollars around because, like I said, because of the Depression, there was a lot more scrutiny of advertising. And there was this, like, like I said, there's this revulsion of capitalism was happening at the same time. Don't forget, right? This is when communism was for real. Forget about Antifa, right? This is, Stalin was dragging guys out of their houses at the middle of the night and they were never being seen again. And oh, by the way, uh, you know, national socialism was beginning to get its boots on uh, at this point too in Germany. So there was not, you know, capitalism, it's easy now, you know, post, uh, post Francis Fukuyama end of history. 
communism and national socialism, in addition, in addition to being like repugnant, awful ideologies, were also you know being sold at the time as alternatives to capitalism. So it wasn't as you know capitalism wasn't on the same foundation it's it's on today, and it's useful to remember that. Um, so people were asking, what is advertising good for? You know, um, and here you know he kind of lays out the uh, Wu lays out the information transfer. Th theory, the classical economic theory of advertising. And for that, you need attention, right? If you're going to do information transfer, people need to pay attention. You need to get people's attention, right, to give them the information. Um, and into this comes Rex Tugwell, who was an American politician. And this was almost the end of advertising. Forget about ad blockers, Mr. Essex. They almost l legislated advertising virtually out of existence, right? But it was very interesting. It was fended off by a coalition of ad agencies, publishers, and industry. Because, of course, agencies, because they were making money off it, and it's their raison d'etre. Publishers, because, let's not forget, publishers make money off of advertising, too. There's, you know, Essex does a great job of laying out the way publishers are uncomfortable with, you know, dirtying their hands with filthy lucre. But the end of the day, when push comes to shove and the rubber hits the road and the bullet hits the bone and all the other metaphors you want to use, uh, somebody needs to make a sale and publishers know that too. And industry, of course, because industry needs to sell its products. So um, advertising almost got crushed in the United States. But luckily, uh, or unluckily, depending on your perspective, luckily if you're me, uh, advertising managed to avoid that fate and... Um, what the Tugwell bill, which was very stringent, you know, that was what that's what this legislation was called. This advertising sort of crippling legislation was called the Tugwell bill. The Tugwell bill was sort of turfed out, and they they came in with a much weaker Federal Trade Commission bill, which gave us, I, I believe, gave us the Federal Trade Commission we have today. So at the end of Chapter Six, it's dark, but Essex says there's two new attention avenues that begin to sort of. Uh, make their appearance. Can you guess what they were? You're going to have to wait to the next study hall to find out. And they would spark a resurgence in the industry. So again, interesting to look at Andrew Essex's book in light of this because not unlike, you know, digital agencies now looking at the at the ad blockers and saying to themselves, good lord, how are we going to sell product? How are we going to move things? How are we going to help our bottom line? People aren't reading our banner ads. Something new came up and, uh, and something new just like something new has always come up since 1833 and Ben Day in his print shop in New York City. So, a little commentary. Um, hopefully, you know, you've, I've given you a taste of what a fascinating history this is and with a lot of useful understanding about the importance of attention in advertising. You know, uh, when you're looking at this, if you're a copywriter or an art director or, a, or a, uh, even an account guy, definitely unpack this whole Hopkins thing. I've tried to give you a taste of it, but there's a lot more in there. McManus for branding, it's amazing, and Bernays for propaganda. Uh, you know, say what you want about Bernays, he's a um, rigorous thinker, and uh, and he was very effective, very effective. So you have to take him seriously. Um, and again, you know, I've talked about this, but the the um, the success and revulsion thing is not going away, and it's but it can help your discernment because I think again, like I said when you find people sort of vaporing on about the end of advertising, and I, I'm sorry, I apologize uh, about cracking on Andrew Essex, but I think he is a useful foil for this. Um, no offense. He wrote a book, which is more than I can say for myself, 
Um, this is a dynamic that has been going on for a very long time, and it's probably advertising is probably not going away. We're probably going to have this dialectic playing out. And then cause marketing. You know, you get it's easy to get the idea that cause marketing is a new thing. In my view, at least, I you know, I, it, cause marketing for whatever reason, it's always sold as like this new thing, and uh, it's not new at all. And of course, the religion thing, which I've alluded to before, it's huge. Advertising is powerful, and it really works. And when you think about it as the successor to religion, you look back in the history of the world and you say, huh, yeah, attention gathering and the use of that attention to sort of drive people to make decisions. Yeah, yeah, wait a minute. Bernard of Clairvaux used that to get people to go on a little thing we like to call the Crusades. Um, and Muhammad got people to go and uh, conquer basically all of North Africa, a ton of uh, the Asian subcontinent, and, uh, yeah, part of Spain. And that's, that's really very interesting. And it kind of puts a new spin on, you know, what advertising people are doing. What are we doing? And when you're commission adver commissioning advertising, what are you doing? And finally, it's a, very, it's a sobering look at the very checkered history of attention gathering. What we do really matters. I mean, this, this, is, this is not a trivial undertaking, this gathering and manipulation of attention or manipulation of people through gathering attention. So I guess I failed to keep this brief, but um, I guess I don't care. I'm just a loquacious guy. Congratulations, you just got out of study hall. I want to thank Henry Beloso for the music and say sorry about the editing. I did it myself. Study Hall is sponsored by Douglas and Runge, an advertising and marketing consultancy. See you next time.